So uh, as Keith said, we are in our Untamed Jesus series. This is actually, believe it or not, the seventh week now that we've been in this series, uh, where we are looking at the places in the Gospels where Jesus says or does things that are seem weird or harsh or out of character. And this week we have yet another challenging and I think interesting passage to look at. When I first had the idea for this series, this was one of a handful of passages that immediately came to my mind. So I knew that eventually we would have to do it. But I put it off for a while because honestly, I really did not know what to do with it. <laughs> and uh, every time I looked at it in the past, I always thought, man, this is just really, really difficult. And you, uh, you may have noticed from your message notes that the title of this message is Rude Jesus. And that's the reason why it's so difficult for me, is because it seems like Jesus is just really rude in this passage. Uh, but as I studied it uh, over the last week, I uncovered all this stuff that I never realized before. And so I'm actually really excited to share with you guys the things that I learned. Um, and I'm really going to try hard to keep it to the amount of time that it needs to be, which is not going to be easy because I feel like I'm overflowing with stuff to say. So we're not going to waste any time. We're just going to get right into it. Uh, we're going to, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to start in verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21. Uh, but before we read this, let's say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this beautiful morning. Uh, we thank you for the chance to uh, look at this scripture together. And God, even though it's a challenging passage, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate it for us. I pray that you would uh, help us to uh, listen well to your Holy Spirit, to whatever you might be trying to reveal to us through this passage. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be attentive, to not be tired, um, whatever, whatever exhaustion we may have um, as a result of whatever happened last week, Lord, I pray that you would uh, wake us up and just speak directly to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Okay, so obviously I can't speak for all of you, but I can speak for myself. And I'll tell you why this passage has bothered me personally over the years, why I've always struggled with it every time I read it. Uh, I have three reasons. So the first reason the passage is tough, is because Jesus comes across as non-empathetic. Right? Here's a woman who's clearly in deep distress. She's crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. 
And the reason she's crying out is not because uh, she wants some money or alcohol or drugs or something like that, right? She's not even crying out on account of her own pain, but she's crying out because of the love that she has for her daughter who's suffering. Uh, This is a mom who loves her kid. And Jesus, who's supposed to represent the character of God the Father, uh, a good father who loves his kids, responds to this desperate mother with silence. That's what it says in verse 23, right? Jesus did not answer a word. So where's the empathy? Where's the compassion? You know, where's the expression of tender love and concern? So that's the first reason. Second reason this passage is difficult is because Jesus comes across as exclusive. Exclusive as opposed to inclusive. Jesus says to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So it sounds kind of like he's saying, my mission is to care for the Jews. The rest of the world can deal with their own problems. But we hear that, and I don't know about you, but I think, well, how does that attitude fit with what we learn in John 3.16, right? The most famous verse in the whole Bible. Even, you know, people who don't go to church, they're usually, so many of them are familiar with John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't say, for God so loved Israel that he gave his one and only Son. It says, for God so loved the world. So the love that is described in that verse seems inclusive, not exclusive. It's for, it's for all the nations, not just one nation. But here, Jesus seems to be advocating for a different version of John 3.16. For God so loved Israel that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever in Israel believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So that's another reason it's troubling. The third reason it's troubling is what I mentioned in the introduction. Is, is Jesus comes across as rude and demeaning even. When Jesus finally does speak to this woman, he implies that she's like a dog. And that just seems incredibly insensitive, especially to a woman who's in distress, right? Um, You know, and it's it's especially seems rude because given in our culture, one of the most demeaning words for a woman is the word for a female dog, right? So it seems kind of like Jesus might be calling her that. It sounds like he's saying, you're a dog, so you're not worthy of what I have to offer. Well, I think you'll be happy to hear that after looking at this passage this week, I'm convinced that it is not telling us that Jesus is any one of those three things. It might seem like it at first, but when we take a closer look, we realize there's a lot more going on. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this story is actually meant to demonstrate that Jesus is inclusive, not exclusive, and that this story is actually meant to exalt this woman rather than demean her. So, how can that be? Well, let's talk about those three concerns, one by one, that Jesus comes across as non-empathetic, exclusive, and rude or demeaning. So, we'll start with non-empathetic. Is Jesus non-empathetic? So I think the first thing we need to recognize is that the key to understanding the story is the end. Uh, That's true of stories in general, right? Especially stories with a twist, like this one. If you watch a movie and it ends with a twist ending, you usually feel compelled to go back 
and watch the earlier parts of the movie again because you know that your experience of those earlier parts of the movie is going to be different when you know the twist. And this is a story that ends with a twist. Uh, the twist in this story is that Jesus grants the woman's request, even though when we are watching the movie for the first time, it seems like he's unwilling to do that. So the question we have to ask is, how do we explain the twist? Well, one way of explaining it is just to say, oh, Jesus just changed his mind. Okay. Well, I think there's another answer that I like a lot more, which is this. It's that Jesus was purposely giving this woman an opportunity to display how great her faith was. Jesus was purposely giving this woman an opportunity to display how great her faith was. So notice, the story ends with Jesus saying, woman, you have great faith. And what I want us to recognize is that if Jesus had just immediately granted her request, that great faith would never have been made manifest. It never would have been evident in this scene. But because of Jesus' initial silence, uh, and through these words that he chooses to speak to her, Jesus creates this opportunity for the woman to show great faith. And what I especially want us to see is not only does he give an opportunity for the woman to display great faith to him, but he gives the woman an opportunity to display great faith to the disciples who are all witnessing this, right? And he gives an opportunity for the woman to display great faith to humanity for as long as the Bible is around. So, although Jesus may seem non-empathetic, the way he's handling the situation is not because of a lack of empathy. Uh, it's not because he doesn't care about this woman, but it's because he wants to give this woman an opportunity to be an example for the ages. And that greatness would have never been evident if Jesus had just said the moment she asked, oh, you poor thing, let's go heal your daughter. So, that's one way of addressing the lack of empathy concern. Maybe you're convinced by that, maybe you're not. Stick with me. So, <clears throat> let's talk about the exclusiveness concern. This is the concern that Jesus seems to be saying he only cares about the Jews. Jesus says to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, we hear that, and it sounds like Jesus is saying, I don't care about anyone but Israel. But what I want us to notice is that there is a big difference between saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, and saying, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. When Jesus was sent to earth, it's clear that he was sent for everyone. Uh, he was sent in order to do something for people of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. That's what it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So Jesus was sent for the world, no doubt about that. But as Jesus says in this passage, this is very true, Jesus was sent to Israel. Uh, if you look at Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels, it is with just a handful of exceptions to Jews, to Jewish people in the Jewish area of the world. Um, he was sent to Israel. That was his mission. Now, the plan for that mission from the start was that through his ministry to the Jews, the whole world would be changed. And that strategy has worked, right? We're here now. It 
it accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. Um, but the strategy involves sending Jesus to the Jews first. So when we hear Jesus say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, we shouldn't hear, I only care about Israel. We should hear, I have to be faithful to God's strategy for blessing all the nations. And that means, for now, focusing on Israel. So here's one way of thinking about it, an analogy that might be helpful if this, you're still struggling with this. Think of Jesus' mission to earth like the first part of building a house. The first part of constructing a house is laying the foundation, right? And that's what Jesus' ministry specifically to the Jews was like. It was like laying a foundation. Now, if you're building a house and you don't start by focusing on the foundation, if you decide, you know what, we're going to focus on everything at the same time. We're going to focus on the framing, the roofing, the windows, the siding, and the foundation all at the same time, then you're going to have a problem, right? Uh, and if Jesus had tried to minister to the whole world when he came to the earth, it would be a lot like trying to build all those parts of the house all at once. If you're building a house, you have got to spend some time focusing on the foundation if you're going to build the rest of the house well. And when you do that, it doesn't mean that you don't care about the rest of the house. It doesn't mean that you don't care about the framing and the roofing and the windows. In fact, the reason you're focusing on the foundation is so that you can eventually get to that point, right? In the same way Jesus focused on Israel during this part of his ministry, it is not an indication that he does not care about the rest of the world. He cares, it's just that the foundation of the house needs to be laid first. And of course, by the end of this gospel, it is abundantly clear that Jesus' heart is for all the nations, because it's Matthew's gospel that ends with what we now know as the Great Commission. The, the last words of the risen Jesus in Matthew uh, are, go and make disciples of all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we should not look at our passage today as evidence that Jesus is exclusive or that he only cares about Israel. In fact, we should see the opposite. Because what we see in this story is Jesus giving someone who is not a Jew an opportunity to demonstrate great faith. And to demonstrate great faith to Jews, to the disciples. And then he praises her for it. All right. Now, the next one is my favorite one to talk about, which is, is Jesus rude and demeaning? So I think part of the, the, this problem is answered by what I said earlier about Jesus giving the woman an opportunity to exercise great faith. And so in giving her that opportunity, he may come across as rude and demeaning, but that's not his, his intention. But there's more to it than that. What I think we need to realize is that Jesus is nowhere near as rude or demeaning here as we might think. So let me explain why. When Jesus finally speaks to the woman in verse 26, he says, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now we know that calling someone a dog, especially a woman, has a negative connotation in our culture. So the question you might have is, well, does it have a negative connotation in Jewish culture as well? And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> there's other places in the Bible, other places in the New Testament, where uh, there's references to people using the word dog, and it is never positive. 
It's always negative. But, this is very interesting, the Greek word here in the, in the original language that gets translated as dog is not the same word as the one that appears everywhere else in the New Testament. It only appears once in the whole Bible, and this is where it appears. And it's similar to the other word for dog, but it's a little different. It's the diminutive form, which means, I think, a better translation of this would probably be puppies. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their puppies. Now, you've got to admit, that takes the edge off a little bit, right? And here's something else that takes the edge off a little bit. Jesus isn't talking about just any puppies. He's, talking, he's not talking about wild street puppies. You know, those dangerous wild street puppies. He says, their puppies. He uses the possessive form. So the kind of dogs that Jesus is talking about are household puppies. He's talking about pets. Puppies that belong to children. So again, I really think that takes some of the edge off. Right? And because this word, this is a different word than any other word for dog that appears in the New Testament, it appears that Jesus is being very intentional about what he's doing here. So, the purpose of the metaphor that Jesus uses is not to demean the woman. Not to demean her. If he was going for that tone, he would have used the normal word for dog. Uh, instead, the purpose of this metaphor is to illustrate that Jesus should care for the children of Israel first. That should be his priority. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't understand that. I don't like that. Well, think about the house metaphor again, right? And also think about this. What Jesus is saying is essentially, you know, if you visited a house and the children were starving, but the pet dogs were well-fed, you would say, I think something's wrong here. <laughs> you know, not because you don't care about the dogs, but because priority really should be given to the kids. And in the same way, Jesus knew that his priority was supposed to be to the children of Israel. Uh, and if he were to focus on ministering to people from other nations instead of Israel, it would be like feeding the household pets before letting... It would be like feeding the household pets while letting the kids starve. So the point, it's not to be rude or demeaning, it's to illustrate how inappropriate it would be for him not to focus on Israel, not to focus on his mission. It would be like feeding the pets but not your kids, or say, like, taking on 50 compassion kids while your own biological children are starving. That sort of thing. But there's more to it than that. Because at the same time that Jesus is expressing this truth, I believe he is also setting the woman up for her response in verse 27. I said that Jesus is intentionally giving this woman an opportunity to display great faith. And I think we see him doing that here in using this illustration. So, and the reason I say that is because Jesus seems to have purposely chosen an illustration that she would understand. Um, and interestingly, it's an illustration that the disciples probably would not understand. And here's why. According to everything I've read about this, um, Jews were not ones to keep dogs in the house because they saw dogs as unclean. 
So they were not pet lovers. They were not dog lovers. If Jesus had described this scene of people eating at a table and, and scraps falling to the floor uh, and puppies running around on the floor, it wouldn't really mean much to those who had grown up in Jewish households. But yet Jesus uses it. Why? Because he knows he's speaking to a woman who would be familiar with that sort of thing. Okay, he speaks her language. He speaks to her situation. He speaks to her in a way that she would understand. Because she came from a region where they were dog lovers. The Greeks were dog lovers. So she would have been familiar with this, this image, whereas um, the disciples would not. And anyone who has a household pet knows that even though the children have priority when it comes to the food, the pets do get to eat what falls on the floor, right? As she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And so, okay, not only is this metaphor that Jesus is using not for the purpose of demeaning her, it's actually for the purpose of communicating to her in a way that she is going to understand and for the purpose of setting her up to display her great faith. I see it kind of like uh, this is a woman who steps up to a baseball plate, and Jesus is the pitcher. And Jesus knows that, that this woman can hit a home run. She's good. And he just sort of lobs her an underhanded slow pitch in what he says. And then she knocks it out of the park. I think that's what's going on here. You know, as I study this passage, I realize it really is amazing how much this passage means the opposite of what we might initially think it does. Uh, it may seem demeaning toward non-Jews or to women, but it is so the exact opposite. As Jesus tells this Gentile woman that she has great faith, great faith, and it's easy to miss how ironic that moment is, because just a little bit earlier, in this same gospel, in Matthew 14, 31, Jesus says to Peter, after he tries to walk on water and fails, he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? So Jesus tells Peter, a Jew, a disciple, that he has little faith. Just a little while before this story, just in the previous chapter. But then... In this story, he tells a Gentile woman that she has great faith. So think about that for a moment. Peter gets it wrong, but a Gentile woman gets it right. And not only that, but in between the story about Peter's failure to walk on water and the story about this woman, there's a story about Jesus confronting the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the day. These are the people who are really supposed to have it right. And he confronts them, and he's like, you've got it all wrong. You're following man-made traditions rather than uh, the Holy Spirit, rather than God. So I don't think it's any accident that when we look at this passage in context, we see that this Gentile woman is being contrasted with the people who are supposed to get it right. It's a dramatic illustration of the fact that, uh, that, that a Gentile gets it right, even though the people who are supposed to get it right are not getting it right. So when we understand the passage in context, it's not demeaning towards the woman, it's an exaltation of her. Now there's one other thing I want us to notice, and this, 
This really stood out to me. When I saw this, it blew my mind. I got really excited. Uh, it's in verse 22, this one detail that you might have missed. It says that the woman is a Canaanite, a Canaanite woman. Now, I don't know how familiar, familiar you are with the Old Testament, <clears throat> but uh, if you are, you probably remember that word, the Canaanites. Uh, the Canaanites were a group of people that uh, the Jews believed God had called them to exterminate from the earth. Uh, they were a group of people who were regarded as so wicked that they should no longer exist. Uh, literally, uh, exterminate. And there are parts of the Old Testament known as the conquest narratives that describe the Jews' campaign of warfare against the Canaanites. Now, I don't want to get into the question this morning of what we're supposed to do with these disturbing passages where God seems to be commanding uh, these acts of violence. That's a, that's a really tough question. And uh, I, I, it would take a significant amount of time to deal with it in detail and, and to deal with it appropriately. So, but we're not going to focus on that right now. But here's what I do want us to notice this morning. This woman, who is an example of great faith, more faith than the, than the disciples, more faith than the Pharisees, is a descendant of Canaanites. Right? This woman is a descendant of a group of people uh, that the Jews believed were so wicked they should have been wiped off the face of the earth. She's not even supposed to exist. So do you realize what God is telling us through this story? He's saying that people of great faith can appear from any nation. Right? The story is saying that what God is doing through Jesus isn't exclusive at all. It's scandalously inclusive. For the people of the time, it's shockingly inclusive. Because even Canaanite descendants, who aren't supposed to exist because the Jews were supposed to have killed them all, are demonstrating great faith in Jesus. More faith in Jesus than the people who are supposed to be demonstrating faith in Jesus. So that's amazing. It's incredible. All right. So hopefully, if you've struggled with this passage, what I've said so far gives you some reasons to be more at peace with it and, and to see in it uh, the Jesus that you know and recognize and love. Um, to finish, I want to talk a little bit about what this woman's example teaches us about what great faith looks like. Jesus commends her for having great faith but what is it about her faith that's so great? Well, there's two things I want us to take away from her example. Uh, two, two, two things that she exemplifies. The first is that great faith perseveres. Great faith is persistent, it's tenacious, and it's steadfast. Sometimes, like this woman, we come to Jesus and it seems like he's ignoring us. Sometimes we pray and we feel like all we get is silence, like this woman initially got. And what this woman's example shows us is that when that happens, great faith doesn't stop praying. Great faith doesn't give up. Great faith doesn't stop going to Jesus. Now, there is something I want to clarify. This is a little aside, but I think it's important when it comes to how we think about faith which is that great faith is not belief without evidence. 
there's a famous quote from Mark Twain, who was not a believer, uh, that says, faith is believing what you know ain't so. And I think we've all known some people of faith, people who identify as Christians, who seem to define their faith in that way. They wouldn't put it in exactly those terms, uh, but what they would say is faith is believing in something in spite of the fact that there's really no good reasons to believe it, and that there's something virtuous about believing in something when there's no good reasons to believe it. And I just want to say no to that definition of faith. I don't like that at all. I don't think that's healthy. I mean, if that was healthy, it would be virtuous to say, oh, there's no evidence for pink unicorns. Well, I'll just well up faith in pink uniforms. Isn't, unicorns. Isn't this, isn't this virtuous? Isn't this good? No, there's nothing virtuous about that. Um, great faith is not believing in something even though you have no reason to believe in it. Instead, we need to think of great faith as steadfastly exercising trust in something that is trustworthy. Big difference there. The woman who comes to Jesus, her faith is not without evidence, right? Because how would she know to even come to Jesus? She knows to come to Jesus because she's heard reports that there's this guy in the area who's performing miracles. There are eyewitness testimonies that miraculous things are happening. People are being healed of diseases. People are having demons exercised out of them. And so she comes to Jesus. It's not a faith without any evidence. It's a faith rooted on evidence. <clears throat> so her faith is not great because it's blind. It's not. Instead, we need to recognize that her faith is great because she perseveres in the belief that what Jesus has to offer is for her too. You see the difference there? See, what I want us to ask ourselves this morning, in light of this woman's example, is do I believe that what Jesus offers is for me? Am I tenacious and persistent about going to him even during the times where it seems like he's ignoring me? Because I should. That's, that's what great faith does. Great faith is persistent in saying, I know this is for me. It's not just for those other people in church. It's not for just for people from over there. It's not just for the rest of my family. This is for me. What Jesus offers is for me. Secondly, this woman shows us that great faith is humble. Great faith is humble. You might have noticed that she speaks three times, and every time she addresses Jesus as Lord. She humbles herself before him. She calls him Lord. And really, it's her humility that allows her to, to display how great her faith is. Because think about it. She could have said to Jesus, did you just call me a puppy? I'm no puppy. You're a puppy. But she doesn't do that. And it's because she doesn't do that that she's able to say the words that lead Jesus to praise her. And the same is true in our own lives. If we're ever going to have great faith, we have to have humility. We have to stop trying to uh, always defend our self-esteem and our worthiness and just trust in God's grace. Just, I don't deserve it, but thanks. 
<laughs> uh, we have to have the kind of attitude that says, Jesus, I'm happy to be a puppy at your table. Like, I don't, I don't need to be the master at the table. I don't need to be the owner of the house. I'm happy to be the puppy. And it's not until we get to that point that the potential for great faith is unlocked. So, great faith perseveres, and great faith is humble. And what this passage shows us is that great faith is possible from any of us. Any of us. Because in this passage, what was considered to be the most unlikely source of great faith, a non-Jewish woman who was the, the descendant of a race so wicked the Jews thought that they were supposed to have been exterminated, is the example for the ages of what great faith looks like. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for this story, even though it's challenging. And we thank you for how it shows that uh, your heart is, is for the whole world. And that what you've done through Jesus uh, opens the way so that uh, people of every tribe, every nation, every tongue uh, have the potential to exercise great faith. Lord, we pray that we would be people of faith. We pray that we would be people who uh, are 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 persistent, who persevere in faith, even when it's difficult, and uh, who, who believe that what you offer is truly for us. And Lord, I pray that you would also give us humility, Lord, uh, the, the kind of humility that unlocks great faith and, and great potential. We give you thanks, Lord, and pray that as we reflect on, on uh, this passage, Lord, that you continue to illuminate for us and uh, help us to be transformed by it for the better. In Jesus' name. Amen.